0: Today I want to share that the sermon I'm going to share today is not the sermon that I was planning on sharing today because I was planning on moving past Luke chapter 7 today and starting Luke chapter 8, which is the parable of the sower, and prepped even with the staff to preach that. And then as I went into my my personal preparation for the sermon, I, I kept feeling convicted to come back to this passage that I was thinking about skipping over that was at the very end of chapter 7. And so as I shared my, my feelings with the staff, they encouraged me. They said, you need to go with the sermon that you feel like is being laid on your heart. And so, so I'm not sure, but this sermon may be for you. You may be the person here today that is for this sermon because there was a reason that God's calling us back to it. Now, we're going to get to the parable of the sower next week. So if you want to read ahead, you go right ahead. Okay, I want you to do, I want you to be prepared for next week. But today we're going to be in the, the last part of Luke chapter 7. And while you turn open your scripture journal there or you turn on your Bible and find it through your app, I want you to I want to think about a show that came on a little bit ago and I became one of my favorites. And maybe you've heard of this show before. It's called The Office. And, okay, so I'm not the only one in the room. The genius behind The Office is it took supposedly eccentric people in a normal everyday environment and recreated scenarios that were easily to relate to. And as you watched Michael Scott, or Jim, or Pam, or Dwight, and everybody's got to love Dwight, as they went through their day, there was these moments as you watched the show that made it so genius, Is because you would watch them interact, and it would be these very socially awkward moments, and they did such a good job that you would cringe, right? I mean, you could feel it in your stomach, and you're like, oh, I, I've been there, I've seen that, that's happened to me, and you just... You know, from a distance you could laugh at it, but in the moment you could just feel it. Well, that's exactly the story we have today. There is a tremendous amount of drama in this story. There is a tremendous amount of tension, and it's not from the action. It's almost from just just how quiet the scene is. But I want you to follow along in this, and like when we watched The Office, if you can. Put yourself into this situation. See yourself in this room, at this table. Because there you will start to feel what Luke wants for us to feel and sense from this. Luke chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Now, the hymn is Jesus. One of the Pharisees, one of the good guys, one of the religious people, one of the church folk, invite Jesus over to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering said to him, "Simon, I have something to say to you." And he answered, Say it, teacher. Now, I'm going to pause right there. Because if you're familiar with Jesus at all, when he says, What do you have to say to me, teacher? We're all going, No, don't. Please don't. Look at this story. Here's a dinner party. And this Pharisee who has some means has invited Jesus because he's an up and coming star, his name's making the papers. And so he wants to to vet him. He wants to find out if he's who he thinks he is. And one thing you need to realize is the Pharisees were the conservative group. They were about, give me that old-time religion. And they were trying to restore Israel to what they believed was a faithful representation of what God wanted. We would have been for the Pharisees. And in fact, much of what Jesus um, taught and what he did made the Pharisees think he may be one of us. And so he's scoping him out. And so he invites him over for this dinner. And he goes into his house. And what you need to picture is probably a, not one of the nicer homes that would have existed at the time. And it would have had an open courtyard area. And because they wouldn't have had air conditioning and he, like you and I, would enjoy. So they would have had this open courtyard and that's where they would have eaten. And so it would have been very easy to kind of look into the house and step in for this woman to come in. Now, she wasn't welcomed and she wasn't expected. She's still breaking all kinds of protocol. But, but it's not like she had to throw open the, do- the front door and fight her way in. And also understand that when it says he's reclined at the table, it's because their tables were low to the ground. They would not sit in chairs like you and I. That was just not part of that culture. And what if we considered it a luxury in many ways anyway and so the tables were low to the ground so you would lean on one elbow to where you could manipulate the food on a table with the other and your feet would go out behind you and so this woman works her way in and she's carrying with her something it's a called a jar, an alabaster jar and that's a particular kind of jar that was designed to hold a particular kind of thing and that's this this perfume, this, this ointment. And you have to understand, in a culture where, where they did not practice the same you know, daily, take a bath the way we did, lived among the animals, that the odors were much different, and so, so perfumes were developed to mask odors. That was a way of being hygienic, as we would say. And so... There was a great commodity and a stock and a trade in these perfumes. And they would range from, you know, sort of of run-of-the-mill up to very lavish and expensive. And so she brings in this jar. And we're led to believe from other places in the the Scriptures that what she's bringing in is essentially the equivalent of of her retirement. This is her security. This is her savings represented in this. And so it's very extravagant. What she's prepared to do. But she comes in and I don't know if she stopped the conversation. I don't know how that went. But I know that Simon, the host, the Pharisee, becomes very uncomfortable at this moment. Because he already knows about this woman. How we know, how he knows, we're not sure. But his language to her lets us know that she's involved in the sex trade somehow. And so obviously not one that Simon's going to feel comfortable stepping into his home and him being associated with her. And she comes in, she makes her way behind Jesus, and obviously she's aware of who he is, and perhaps she'd already had an interaction with him, and it's, it's response to that interaction that now brings her to this moment. And she came with a plan. She came to anoint him with this, this ointment, with this oil, with this perfume, And honor him in that way. But apparently in the moment of seeing him. And whatever interaction has occurred between them. Overwhelms her with emotion. You ever been there? And so she begins to sob. Almost uncontrollably. And so as she's doing. She's sobbing so much that. Her tears are dropping onto his feet. This extended back. And instead of recoiling or pulling away, Jesus allows her tears to fall on His feet. And when she becomes aware of what's occurring here, she doesn't even take the time to look around and find, find a, a, a towel or part of her garment. She just lets her hair fall down and begins to wipe it and then begins to anoint His feet. Now, if you've been sitting there and you don't feel uncomfortable yet, that's, part of that's because we don't understand all the protocols But Jesus is supposedly a rabbi. And so there was been expectations. And for this woman, and a woman with this kind of reputation that Simon has already let us know, that this this would have been a shameful moment. And then when she begins to touch him, she's breaking through all kinds of barriers. She shouldn't even be in this room. And in that culture, the way that women were viewed, they had very low status. And what you're gonna see as we go through Luke, you're gonna see an incredible theme, and it's always gonna emerge. And so I'll take just a few seconds off on it. Here is that Luke, again and again and again, through Jesus, and what Jesus does elevates the status of women well beyond what the culture looked like. And in fact, it is the account of Luke and others in the gospel that has through centuries has brought the role of women out of where it was just they were considered property. Her role in the room, they were to come in, serve the food, and then to leave. And here Jesus allows her to stay, allows her to touch him, and then you have all this emotion going on. She's crying, she's weeping, she's anointing. And now Simon begins to assess the situation. And so he thinks to himself, well, if he's a prophet, okay, that's his question, is he a prophet? If he's a prophet, he would know what kind of reputation. I mean, everybody knows about her reputation. So if he a prophet, he would know this already. So he's already judged the woman, and now he's judging Jesus. And Jesus is about to do this. I love it when Jesus does this, because Jesus knows what he's thinking. So Jesus is about to prove he's a prophet in two ways. He's about to speak about the woman, and he's about to read Simon's mind. So he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, say it, teacher. And with that, we go, oh, no. So in verse 41, he starts in with a parable, a very brief parable. But he says this. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? So Simon, following along, says, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says to him, You've judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Do you see the incredible drama in this? The tension in this very simple scene? And just place yourself at that table, and the woman comes in, and she's got the past, and she's crying uncontrollably, and she falls down at Jesus' feet, and she begins to do this extravagant thing for him. And Simon thinks to himself, if only Jesus had known. And Jesus responds out loud what Simon had thought inside and said, I'm going to tell you a story. And he tells a story about the two debtors. And what I need you to notice in the story, Jesus is very specific. He says, the two debtors, neither of which could pay back their, their canceled debt. And so often we get in the idea that, well, my debt's not as big as your debt. But the point is, neither one could pay them back. They were both in the same Status. They were both in default. They were both upside down in their debt. And when they're both forgiven, he says, which one do you think has a greater appreciation of it? And I wonder if Simon's already figured out where this is going. Because even in the scripture it says, the one with the larger one, I suppose. Because I think he knows the implications of his own words at this moment. And then Jesus begins to unpack for him and says, Simon, the very things that you were supposed to have done, that culture would have dictated, that protocol would have expected, you totally skipped over. Because you weren't paying attention to who I am. But this woman knows. And she has responded and reacted and been gracious in that. And then he looks at her and says, Your sins are forgiven. And Jesus is not unaware of her sins. He says, her sins which are many. And that doesn't even seem to bother her that Jesus would call out her many sins in that moment and just says, you're forgiven. As I share this each week, together as a staff, we'll read the scriptures for the upcoming sermon. Because we want to live out of the scriptures for the week and reflect on them. And I am so blessed as I interact with the different staff members and they, and they share their insights and how these are speaking to them. While I was talking about this story, and particular this woman, and I was visiting with some of the staff, and Diane Vendigoni on our staff says, You know, I want what she has i i wish i could have some what she has that that uncontrollable response to jesus where she's not worried about what somebody else has around her what somebody else is thinking about what somebody else is judging or what somebody else is looking just that all-consuming, focused on Jesus because she's not worried about the protocol. She's not worried about the stairs. She's not worried about the awkward moment. She's not worried about anybody else at the table. She's just all in for Jesus. I want what she has. And I think that's where we need to find what Jesus is calling for us in this. And I want to go back and focus on one phrase here. When Jesus turns and he he looks at Simon... And he says this very interesting line. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? Verse 44. Do you see this woman? Well, if you just take it on Facebook, of course he sees her. He just, she's broke into his house. She's there in the room. She's making a scene. What do you mean, do I see her? See, I don't think Jesus is asking, do you physically see her? But do you see who she is? Do you see her story? And do you see her? And he draws all this attention to her. And what he's saying is, you need to pay attention because what she's doing, we can learn so much from her. So I just want to give you three takeaways. Three things that I think we need to see from this woman. And I hope these encourage you and challenge you and and bless you as you try to pursue Jesus like, like this. Here's the first one. It changes how you see yourself. You are not the simple you. In Christ, you are the redeemed you. You are not the sinful you that you were. See, oftentimes we get lost in this, and even if we've been in the church for a while, we still think we're in that sinful state, that that's who we are. Because it's so hard for us to see ourselves as redeemed that we still think we're sinful. And so what I want you to do is I actually want you to do something. If you've got your journal with you, I want you to look, and at the very top of this section, there's a heading and it says a sinful woman. Okay? I'm gonna challenge you. I want you to mark that out. It's okay. The heading's not inspired, okay? And I want you to write redeemed woman. Because that is what she is, and that is what you are. Every time we come across it, it's like she's still sinful. She's not still sinful, she's redeemed. She's changed. She's a new creation inside or out. And that is exactly what happens to you and to me when we come to Jesus. We don't walk around as sinners. We walk down as redeemed children of God. That's who we are. That's who you see yourself. To still think, I'm such a worthless sinner, means that Jesus hasn't been able to do His work on you yet, and that is simply not true. You're redeemed like the woman. See who you are. it also changes how we see others it changes how we see you can go to the next slide everyone you meet is a candidate for grace this woman comes into the presence of simon and simon simply does not see her as worthy to be around jesus simply does not see her worthy as to be in his house sees it scandalous but Jesus sees her as a candidate for His grace. Everyone that you come in contact with, your loved ones and the ones that get on your nerves, and sometimes those are both in the same, I know. The neighbor that drives you up the wall, the person that you're going to encounter at a restaurant today, everyone that you see is a candidate for grace. And if we have an awareness of what we've been forgiven from, and we have an awareness of that we've been redeemed, that is so much easier now to see everybody else as potential people to be redeemed and candidates for grace. In fact, here's what I believe this story teaches. Only forgiven people can forgive. Because it is when you have the reality and the understanding that you have been forgiven from much Can you then turn around and forgive the person that's hurt you? Forgiven people can forgive. Everyone you meet is a candidate to receive that. And then the last thing I wanted to encourage you with is this. It changes how we see worship. See, that's what this woman is doing. She falls down and she makes an extravagant action for love. And so, worship is a response to grace, not a requirement of it. So often we think, well, I gotta go worship because I gotta check a box. That's what God wants me to do. He's gonna be upset if I don't. That was never the intent for worship. Whether it's gathered in here corporately, or it's something that you do in your own time, or it's with the radio as you drive down the road, whatever it is, worship is a response to grace, not a requirement of grace. Well, now I'm a Christian, I guess I got to worship. Never intended that way. What she does is she does this because she is overwhelmed and consumed with this love and this appreciation and this gratitude for what Jesus has done in her life and the response that she knows is to weep because she realizes how great it is and how great it is and pour it all out for him. Not ashamed of what anybody else in the room thinks. Not holding back with any kind of restraint. And what I would ask you to wrestle with is, does that reflect your worship? If you think about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, how's your worship of Him? Because if it feels like a requirement, it feels like if I'm going to stand in good graces with God, I guess I better. That's not Grace. And that's not a relationship. And Jesus invites us into a relationship. So I thought about this. I thought about this awkward scene and, and how it would make everybody feel, and this act of worship that the woman's doing. I thought of a story that I've shared with you before. But it comes from the church that I grew up in. I grew up a church in Fort Worth called the Richland Hills, and now it's just referred to as the Hills. But many years ago, back in the 80s, a guy named Billy came to our church. And if you want to say sinful person, Billy was a sinful person. Gangs and drugs and he'd had a hard life. Well, Billy falls in love with Jesus. And his wife falls in love with Jesus. And Billy doesn't know the rules, right? So when Billy falls in love with Jesus and we would gather and we'd sing songs like we sang today and we'd sing worship songs, all Billy knew to do was throw his hands up. And just reach for the Jesus that he loved so much. And he would sit right in the middle of the congregation and do that. Well, you can imagine. Some people, because we weren't used to that yet. Some people got uncomfortable. They go and they talk to the elders about it. The elders had a great response. They said, don't worry. He's new at this. He'll calm down and be like the rest of us. (laughs) He'll get over it. Well, Billy didn't get over it, and he didn't calm down. So week after week, as we sang praise songs, Billy would stand, and he would worship and worship. Eventually, those around him joined in, and they would share the same kind of extravagant expression to the Lord. Billy fell so in love with Jesus that he wanted to do something. And So here's this. Guy coming off of drugs and getting out of gangs and Jesus literally working a miracle in his life decides that that he's going to share scripture. And so he begins to memorize scripture. The book of 1 John, how about that? Not a little chunk, the whole book. And one day he stands up and delivers the book, word for word in the pulpit. And sets up for a series that they're going to do. And then he does it again because he's not done. So then he does Philippians. And then later, he does 1 Peter. And so, wearing what would look like biblical clothing, here's this rough and tough guy, the very personification of the rough and tough and salty Peter. And he quotes him word for word and becomes Peter for everybody in the room. That was a Sunday night, the Wednesday of that week, due to complications of the lifestyle that he'd lived earlier. He died, unexpectedly. So at that funeral, in a packed auditorium, as we began to remember Billy's life and sing songs to the Jesus that he loved so much, you can just imagine what everybody did. All hands went up, and it became this extravagant response of love to the grace that Jesus shows to one on drugs and in gangs and to you and to me. Do you see how it changes everything? Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for anyone here that you felt needed to hear this message today. And maybe we need to hear it because we're in the place of the woman and we feel like all we would get is scorn of the room. And instead, help us, Father, to focus on the eyes of Jesus and see what they are calling us to And let's hear the grace that He's extending, Father. And Father, for those of us that that we at least intellectually understand that, help us to fully accept that we are no longer the sinner that we were. We are now the redeemed. And to live that way. And to put back any lie that wants to try to convince us that that's still who we are. But to live as one that Jesus has completed His work in. Father, maybe we find ourselves sitting in the spot of Simon and we wrestle with judging others and keeping others at arm's length and not willing to forgive. Father, help us to see the way that you see and to see others as you see them. And Father, as we come to an understanding of what your grace is, Allow that to motivate us and help us to fall in love with you again and again and again and again and fall down at your feet and worship in extravagant ways, Father. Ways that are unrestrained because your grace for us is unrestrained. Father, may our worship always be a response and never some kind of requirement. So, Father, I pray that you would hear the prayers of each person now. The ones that feel like this message that's too good to be true that you would speak to them. The ones that feel like I've been so restrained that you would help us to open our arms, release our grip on one to control everything, and give give you our all 24-7 as we go through our week. Father, help us to focus on the one that sits at the table with both the sinful woman and with the Simon and loves them both in that moment. Father, it's in his name that I pray. It's in his name that we rejoice. It's in his name that we're redeemed. Amen.